imagine you wanted to write something down for someone 10,000 years from now to read, which would help them understand what life was like today. Not just the state of the world, but of the details of your local environment. Let's consider how it would change if it were written by someone who lives hundreds of miles away. Let's discuss how differences in perspective shaped the history we read today, this week. Philosophers. Philosophers. Okay, David. So we were just, we just kind of stumbled on this topic. I'm glad we decided to actually record an episode about it instead of making an episode where we... Yes, where we talk for an hour and then say, do you want to do a show? Exactly. Yeah. Even though we still did that. We definitely still did that. (laughs) Two hours almost. Two hours later. Okay. So what are we talking about today? Well, we're going to talk about the perspectives that we see throughout history and by that we mean that at l- the view that we get of history is only through the lens of the people who actually wrote it which often lived very different lives from the people they wrote about Mm-hmm. Uh, so we wanted to we wanted to talk about what kind of effect that might have had, as well as a few other related uh, topics. So let's talk a little bit about what hist what we mean when we say history, because there is a technical definition of history in mm-hmm. addition to maybe the colloquial definition. So the simple way I think to put it for the technical side is history means when we started writing stuff down essentially yes everything before things that we wrote down is called prehistory um so that's, yes that is what prehistoric means yes yeah. we, things that happened before we started writing about them right um i don't off the top of my head no let's see like ten thousand years ago yeah um now, this is also, I mean, a good note to make. It's not like we started writing and then everyone started writing at the same time. No. Um, writing emerged in one place in the world. It, well, it emerged many times, but one place first and then sort of spread around. Yeah. And, of course, one person had to come up with a way to write and then only some other people would have been interested in learning how to write. That kind of a thing. So, according to Wikipedia... Prehistory, all known, also known as pre-literary history, is the period of human history between the use of the first stone tools by hominins 3.3 million years ago and the invention of writing systems. Um, and I need to go figure out when that was. <laughs> um, so pretty much when you had people that you could probably call humans that are somewhat recognizable as humans. Um, uh hominids is a much broader category than humans i know but like anything that is a hominin okay that depends i guess if you look you're talking about very very early humans okay but would you look at that resemble apes more than than we do oh well maybe at that point like humans anatomically as we know them have only been around for about 100 or 200 thousand years 
That's so significantly less time than hominids have existed. Okay, so the oldest system mentioned by Wikipedia is the token system for recording accounting purposes in Mesopotamia circa 9000 BCE. Okay, so 11,000 years. Um, however, literally, these were just numbers. Yes, um, yeah, just record keeping. After that, you had the Jianhu symbols. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Carved into tortoiseshells in around 660 BC. So there's still about a 3,000-year period of time where it's like we were writing numbers down. But 660 or 6,600? 6,600, sorry. Okay, that's, there's a those, difference there. Those are different, yeah. 660 um, BC. <laughs> um Anyway, so th- th- that's what we're talking about. So, and this is important because what we really want to get at is who wrote these things down and also maybe the perception that people might have of he- learning about history. So I don't know about you, but um, my distinct impression going into a history class, be it in high school, pre-high school, or in college was I'm the, the, a good history teacher would come in and say, I'm going to tell you a story about us mm-hmm. as specifically humans at this time in this place. And here is what happened. And then he tells you, he or she tells you what happens usually in the form of a narrative, because that's easier for us to understand. And that's kind of what history is. It's the story of it's us. the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. It's the narrative. It's the collection of stories about humans um, in the technical sense because we have writing to back it up for proof. Um, Which that's great. So you learn things about, you know, what was ancient Egypt like? You know, what was, you know, what were the Huns like? You know, all all kinds of things. But um, when you start looking at the sources of this information, especially these very old sources, Mm -hmm. they're extremely limited relative to what you're taught i would think like yes and, and to be fair there's also a second discipline that that isn't so much history but anthropology which informs a lot of our ideas about what people were like yes um but that's not out of the mouths of the people that lived then yeah it's not the same as history history no. and anthropology go hand in hand yes um when you want to get a full under or a as a full an understanding about the past the human past as you can but they're not the same right um and of course you also run into the other problem that a lot of historical sources are dubious because people were then as they are now superstitious and would write things down that we know not to be true yeah so you also get to have fun filtering those things out to get an actual understanding of what happened. Mm-hmm. So those things aside, because I, I think we all can understand how we can look at the farming implements that we were able to uncover in an archeological dig and make assumptions about how they were used because we can recreate those and try to use them ourselves. Right? Yes. Um, but that doesn't tell you a whole lot about what those people thought of themselves how they like it doesn't necessarily inform you to why to some of the things they do a a better example is we find religious totems all the time Mm -hmm. that's very common um and that can tell you a little bit about like by how it's shaped maybe what they were going for uh like what it's supposed to 
symbolize mm-hmm. like what it meant what physically it's mean to, meant to represent but as far as why it doesn't tell you a whole lot especially because most of them are crude mm-hmm. you know they're you know i, I think you might a, a good example is you you see these images of what the hieroglyphs hieroglyphics look like in in egypt for example which look uh, just looking at them would be like oh this is a great thing because it tells stories and writing that we can read and then figure out why they did what they did mm-hmm. but imagine those didn't exist and you just had the sphinx yeah what does the sphinx um, or t- even if you just had like the bigger artworks that you find in the walls of uh egyptian architecture and things like that right like without the hieroglyphic explanation around it how are you supposed to figure out what's going on mm-hmm. like those tell a story that are clearer but yes the sphinxes yeah what 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 the heck is that supposed to be right or the pyramids in general they're even more vague you know here are big shapes made out of stone well although you can go inside the pyramids and figure out what they're for yeah but why a pyramid sure why not a mound like most other places you know what what does that shape hold special relevance did their triangle good triangle good yes dome better but anyway um <laughs> dome hard dome hard yes um but other things like and, and i think this is funny too because we're kind of walking next to some of my favorite historical conspiracy theories that are out there um but like even the alignment of the pyramids like how they are geographically situated um is interesting um and correlates but that's the key thing they're just correlated they don't say well we put these here because stars Mm -hmm. that's not written anywhere and to be more frank about it there are a lot of things that aren't written because they're just obvious at the time Um, a good example uh would be imagine in the far far future you find a stop sign but all the words have long that were painted on it have long since gone away but it's in an octagon imagine finding an octagonal piece of steel and trying to figure out what it was used for yeah just because it's an octagon you know it's special because it's that shape but there's no telling right, also sheet metal doesn't occur naturally <laughs> right well but the, yeah so we know it was made manufactured and it, but why did the humans that made it, like I'm talking 10,000 years in the future, sure. we've lost all historical records for some reason. Like say we've decided to upload all of our historical records to computers, then a GRB near passes us and like wipes all the computers, we fall into a dark age and then 10,000 years sure. later. You stumble across this metal octagon. Yeah. yeah. What is it for? You know, and to us, it's obvious. No one needs to write down what a stop sign looks like. Right. You see them everywhere. You have daily experience with them. Right. Um. Yeah. Stuff like that uh is interesting um but we we have the same problem looking back in history uh things that were obvious to them are not obvious to us right Uh, a good example is coinage um when i say coinage i don't just mean literal coins which are stamped pieces of metal i mean before coins when you use mediums of exchange you don't always know which one's worth more than which mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, like for example. And so if you find a guy, I mean, you may have found the penny collector of his country mm-hmm. and that's, but he happened to have all of the, you know, pennies. And we think, man, this must guy must've been really wealthy. Look at how many <laughs> bronze circles he had, but in reality, he was still very poor. Yeah. All kinds of things like that, I guess. Um, but, but we do have records that tell us what people were like, what happened. Um, 
but again, they're from few sources, relatively speaking. Mm-hmm. And there's some good reasons for that. Um, I think the obvious one is writing is still pretty new. Um, and when it comes to its how broadly it is accepted and how broadly it is implemented. Yes. Literacy, I, I should say. Yes, literacy and writing. Like so so one thing that was illuminating to me, um, so I'm interested in fancy pens and paper and such. And I was learning about, you know, like what what does it take to make certain kinds of paper? And this is not about to turn into an episode about paper manufacturing, but um sorry, it wasn't about what does it take to make paper? It was what did people write on before we had all these nice papers that we have today? And the answer was that the options were kind of bad because there wasn't really a lot of demand for nice writing instruments at all because not that long ago, like even just a hundred years ago or so, writing was not something that you just did on a whim that much. You had a purpose for writing. Writing was a purely utilitarian task. You didn't care about how nice your writing experience was. Mm-hmm. You cared about, is it going to to stand up long enough that someone will be able to read it when they need to read it? Right. I pulled up an <clears throat> interesting graph talking about this. Um, so even in the modern world... Um, but to date it, it would be that this was data was last collected in 2016. We're still more than 10% of the world is illiterate. Mm-hmm. Still can't read and write even in the modern era, but that goes above 80% in the, by definitely 1850 between 1850 and 1900. Yeah. More than like 80% of the world was illiterate and it only increases throughout time. Right. Um, especially, the further back you go, the the more illiterate people were. So this was right. extreme at the time too. Um, and there's good reasons for it, you know. I think. Sure. Um, you don't need to know how to write to farm, for example. Right, or most things that you would be doing back then. True. Um, right, and, and and again, also think about like what what would you be writing about? Because writing is a very utilitarian thing most of the time. Like very little writing would have been about stories and such and history a lot of it was like as you said as far as we can tell three thousand years before people started actually writing words and stories people used it to keep records you have numbers accounting data (laughs) you know i need to know how much you know hemp i have in my store or whatever or uh you know hops and things like that because that's what people were mostly concerned with for keeping records for back then. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that's, that's what you care about. You care, you're, you're like maintaining inventory. Some of the oldest writing, if you can call it that, that we can find is people keeping inventory. Yep. Um, and the, the next, and, and I think there's, that even is revealing. Um, the most common use of writing today is to either share information or tell stories, but they also don't just rely on an author you have to have a suitable audience to consume it. Yes. Literacy goes both ways. It's not just the number of people. Well, it kind of goes both ways. It's it's the number of people who are able to read and write 
that's both the group of people that can produce things to be read, mm-hmm. but it's also produces the number of people that can read it. So right. what's the point in writing a manual on how to fish if 90% of the population can't read it anyway? Right. You're not helping anyone. Who are you writing for? Yeah, exactly. So it's both a supply and a demand problem in that way. Um, but they're fixed to the same point. The number of people who could write are the same number of people who could read, essentially. I know it's not always that simple, um, but generally speaking. Um, so, but the, like, but like we, we indicated, there are some people who did do this. Um, there's a lot of Greek people who did this, actually, that, that I at least know. Um, Herodotus is a good example um others <laughs> and, um i i'm blanking on names I, and and i get greek philosophers and authors mixed up because a lot of greek philosophers also wrote but they weren't necessarily writing histories they were talking about their philosophy right there's a distinct difference yeah. um but there's a couple of these greek historical writers um they they traveled around to, to write about what they saw and bring it. And the reason they did that is because literacy rates were slightly higher in Greece at the time. And we're talking like in the 500 BC range and maybe a little further back than that. Not historian here. If you really want to know, go talk to one. I'm sure they would love to tell you about it. Um, but they go to places to write about what they're observing happening so that they can go back to Greece where they're in the academy or the gymnasium as it was called maybe, but and talk to other people who can probably already read and write about what the world is like, because you don't have photographs, anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. And we've mentioned this before. I don't remember the exact number, but Jared Diamond mentioned it in a book. Uh, it's not his book, Guns, Germs, and Steel that, I'm, that I've read. It's the other one that you've read. Uh, the World Until Yesterday. Yeah. Um, how far did the average person travel from their birthplace? Not far. Not far. So your perception of the world is very narrow so the only way for you to know about things in other places is either to hearsay it and anyone who's played the child's game of telephone knows exactly how reliable human beings are at just verbally saying to each other not not um so writing is useful in that case it's like i need to write this down so that i don't have to just tell somebody which also i have to remember it because these trips are not i'm taking a weekend down to you know the Persian empire to see what it's all about and then coming back, you know, no, no, you're, it does not happen. It's month and year long expeditions into these places. Right. Yeah. Significant cost, very dangerous. So you better be writing it down because you, a won't remember and B you might die. You, you very well might, you need to have some way for your information to survive, even if you don't and to get yeah. back to, to home. So, um, that's when you really start seeing it become more, I think, useful. And, and these are things that we use for insight into what the world was like for humans, especially in things that you don't typically find artifacts for. Um, a good example is like governmental structures and hierarchies. You can infer things like that sometimes by, well, how many of the big, big houses were there and how many of the small, small houses were there? And, and, and are they all on the same street? Like, you know, you, you can kind of do that. Um, same thing with religion. Hmm, there must have been about this many-ish deities that are important because they had the biggest temples. So, yeah, um, maybe that. Um, 
But if you want to know for sure, I mean, they'll at least be mentioned explicitly by these these historical writers, um, and they'll tell you what they observed the people who, you know, did these things were about. I, I think one of the most interesting ones was um, even within the Greek city-states themselves, they were very different from each other. Um, And the two that everyone remembers are Athens and Sparta, because reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, But even within Athens, very few people knew what Spartan life was like, even though they're both Greek. They speak the same language. They're basically neighbors. Yeah. Basically neighbors. But the hilly terrain of Greece geographically separated them enough that the daily goings-on of a Spartan citizen was not common knowledge to the average Athenian citizen. They had no idea how their government worked, what their life was like, you know, how they saw themselves. And some of the more interesting things, insights that we get out of this is, um, and this is something that I don't think you could have ever learned from artifacts, but according to the writings at the time, the Spartans, which maintained a large slave population, viewed themselves as an occupying nation yes they're invaders yes we are the invaders and we are occupying this land even though we've been here for thousands of years we're the invaders though but we're occupying you and we're at war with you and that's informed all a lot of their ritualistic behavior and interactions with their underclass Mm -hmm. which was very different in other places um Whereas in Athens, they did not see it that way. People, some people, and there's writings about this too, in the Athenian way, there is much more of the idea that, well, some people are just born to be slaves because that's all they're good for, essentially. Mm-hmm. Or they're, And that doesn't make them evil or wrong or bad. It just means that's their purpose. But that's a very different, that's a very different way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that we were talking about specifically, and this is, we're stepping to Rome here, which is different, but... Um, a Roman holiday like Saturnalia, for example, where oh the the it's very a part of this ceremony was for homo from for slave masters to invert their role with their house servants or slaves, where they would pretend to be the slave and they would even do things for their slave, like let their slave boss them around and give them presents, mm-hmm. which is really strange to us because our modern perception of slavery, at least where we're from is entirely negative. Um, and it would have been strange for the Spartans, for example, that don't view it that way. Like, why would you ever let the people you're subjugating because you conquered them conquer you for a day? Right. makes no sense. Um, but we wouldn't, but, but how would you know that? You know, how do how do you know that's what that holiday was about? I, I think most people, when they think of historical holidays, they think, well, a lot of food was probably consumed, which is probably true. Um, that's that's a very common cultural thing today across many different cultures as well. When you gather, it's you, you eat. Eating is a thing. We have to do this anyway. We have to do it anyway. And why not make a big deal out of it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, and it's something that everyone likes. Like you, you Everyone has to eat. So I'm, I'm going to make food and you're going to eat it <laughs> because you need it. Or you'll be hungry. Yeah. Or you shall be hungry. Yes. Um. So this is like, I think, laying the groundwork um, a bit about kind of what the history was like. But what if we proposed a, like, looking, let's go back to my 10,000 years from now example, right? How how accurate do you think it would be for someone who lives in a different 
geographical area from you, perhaps a different socioeconomic stratum for you. Someone who does not live the same kind of life that you live, that's common to your local culture, how accurately do you think they would be able to describe your culture? What your day-to-day life is like? I don't think they could do it very well most of the time, or at least that's the general sentiment. Um, Another example, which we have on our list to talk about, is those of you who live in an urban environment versus those of you who live in a rural environment, if you live in an urban environment, how well do you think a rural person could describe city life? Yeah. Versus rural people, how well and adequate do you think that a city person could describe rural life? Mm-hmm. Probably not that you would you would find things that were wrong. Um, sure. And I, honestly, um, things like stereotypes would probably find their way into those types of writing unless the conscious effort was made to avoid them by doing interviews and such. Right. Um, now, imagine that you don't even speak the same language, so you can't even effectively communicate, and all they can do is observe you, and now all they have are stereotypes, you know. That's essentially the circumstances under which most of the historical texts that we have were written. Um most of the people who wrote these historical works you had to be to some degree wealthy and uh, you know well established in order to even learn to write you had to have the free right, time right cuz why else are you writing right yeah you you had to have the free time you had to have the resources to get someone one of the also very few people who not just only could read and write but could teach someone else to read and write well but even then like what what is your purpose for writing like Let's go back to the record keeping thing. Okay, if you're keeping records for inventory, well, you have to be wealthy enough to have enough stuff that you can't just keep track of all of it in your head. You have to write it down. Right. That's not a common thing back then anyway. Sure. So, yeah, it was already an elite thing. Not not because the poor people were too stupid to learn how to write or because nobody would want to teach them. It's why why would they write? Well, and not only that, but it much like it is today, wealth tends to accumulate in urban centers. Um, that's not to say that wealthy folks did not live in countrysides. I mean, agrarian English lifestyle was kind of this way. Um, you would have dotted areas of literate people amongst, uh, you know, the, the the widespread rural landscape, but. Typically speaking, their main areas of interaction are more localized. They're, they're more, you know, centralized than than not. Um, and now I'm not going to sit here and pretend like they're. We should not listen to these things, or we should not take anything from them because their perspectives were probably off. But I do think it's a, it's worthwhile to acknowledge it, you know. And I think that this happens. Um, I do think that there are historians that look at what was written and then also have to look at the context under which it was written. For example, okay, who wrote it? Um, where were they from? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, for example, Greeks and Persians did not always get along very well. So Greek writings on Persian life may not always be as positive. Questionable. Yes. yes. There, there are other potential motives at play as to what they might say about it. Um, or what are they going to focus on? You know, what, what, where would they exaggerate? Where would they, you know, be more concise? 
also like you said what what was important to to write about um one of the things we have already mentioned is well accounting is important okay um travelers on expeditions trying to bring information back to the homeland was a thing but that was relatively i think a low percentage of the writing that was done certainly i mean why why was marco polo so special he went to china yeah that was a big deal back then <laughs> so you've been oh i've been to china Whoa. i've been and, and came back like that yeah, and came back <laughs> well that's not to say that the Chinese would have just killed somebody who, who went there or something like that. But it's a, that that was a significant journey to go on and come back with information. Where's he from? I don't remember. Europe, though. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, big deal. Um, but when you look at, I think, the texts, uh, out of all of the texts that we've been able to collect from history, so starting at zero, let's just say year zero, like all the BCs together, what would your estimation be is the percentage of those that are religiously oriented texts? And not just maybe, um, when I say text, I mean just any writing in general. What percentage of the writing? Yeah. Has to do with religion. Mm, I mean, a significant portion, but. Yeah. It depends when this changes over time. How so? So your your writing is going to be very utilitarian at first, and then later some of the things besides just stories that people are telling, things that are going to be important might be like laws, codes of law. Um, but it takes it took until later for like organized religion to have volumes of of text that they held as sacred and things like that okay how much of it do you think was propaganda and i don't mean necessarily the way we think of propaganda today but i'm going to use an example um the oldest written work that we have what is that the oldest written work that we still have physical copies of. Like a narrative. Yeah. You're wanting me to say Epic of Gilgamesh. Yes. Yeah. That's what I want you to say. Um, I don't know about you, but it's a great story to read. It's very entertaining. It's yes. interesting. But if the, he, but it, I also think that Gilgamesh existed as a person. Very well could have. Um, Not as described in the story. But that's the point I'm trying to get at. Yeah. Um, if, But imagine back then when your knowledge about the world outside of your local area is all within the fog of war, if you will. And you're superstitious. And you're superstitious. And then someone comes and tells you the story about this Gilgamesh guy. And then he rolls up with his army because he's taking land for his kingdom. How likely are you to want to fight a war against this man, <laughs> you know, or the son of Gilgamesh or whatever? Like, sure. The, yeah. These stories held power amongst the superstitious people, mm -hmm. uh, which was pretty much everyone. Everybody. Um, Including even the people who were writing them, most likely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I don't know. I, I think that... I guess what I'm trying to say is the incentive is there. Um, and I don't think it's with... I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility for people to 
I, I don't think that prehist. I'm not saying that. Pre, I I do think that prehistoric historic humans also el- told fish stories. Like we yes. we elaborated or not we well, not elaborated. exaggerated exaggerated. That's it. We exaggerated back then too, and exaggeration is a form of propaganda sometimes. Um, well, it often is. Um, so I don't know. I I feel like a lot of the stories that were written and a lot of histories, um, which again we tell in narrative form. I, I would be willing to bet that there's and they're not none of very few of them are peer reviewed, you know, um, so you have a lot of leeway in what you put in there. Um, I think a good example that I learned about recently was um, so let's take a text that survives till today that is old, maybe not as old as people think it is, but old, um, the Christian Bible. Mm. Now before you say which Christian Bible, we'll get to that. Um, That's a good question, though. It is a good question. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm not going to get to that, I guess. The point is it doesn't really matter. Uh, the, the, the specific example I have is that um, there, there is a name for the main antagonist in the Christian Bible. Who's the main antagonist? If, if you were to read the Bible itself, who would it tell you is the main antagonist? Satan. Right. What other names does that entity have? What other names does Satan have in the yes, Bible? Because he's referred to different ways in different books. Yes. There's, I mean, adversary. Um, Lucifer. Is that actually in the Bible? Yes. One time. One time. And we know who wrote it. Mm. So this is the point I'm trying to get at. So his name, and there's a reason, um, Lucifer, it's a name that's derived from either, I think it's a Greek phrase or maybe it's a Latin phrase, um, because he also has the name, the son of the morning. That's another like artsy name. Well, you know, Lucifer coming from things like, you know, lustrousness or light, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I don't know, I'm not a linguist, but you can kind of tweak that name to sound like Son of the Morning, right? So the guy who translated it, he was he was translating the Bible from one language to another. Um, and I think that at this point, the Catholic Church had roughly been established. Um, there was a hierarchy within a formalized version of the church at this point. Um, uh, when he translated it, he did not have to translate it to that name. He could have used other variations of ways to say son of the morning because that's that's a phrase that's not literal, right? Mm-hmm. But he chose that one. And another interesting thing about his history is that he was in the running to be essentially the Pope of the time, but there was one main person as his opposition, a guy whose name just happened to be Lucius. Hmm. You know, or I think his name actually might have been Lucifer as well. So... He literally just changed the name of Satan to a name that benefited him at the time, even though it was still technically correct. If you were to derive that name down to the language that he translated it from, it's right, still totally correct. valid. Yeah. But his choice was influenced by, hmm, if I can make a Bible that a lot of people are going to read and say Lucifer and then look at this guy over here and say, hmm, it, it's going to cast him in a negative light, especially amongst the superstitious. And right. this guy wants to imagine Bishop Satan, like Bishop Satan. Yes. <laughs> hmm. Hello. I am Father Satan. <laughs> Welcome to my parish, which is funnier <laughs> in more ways than one. Um, 
Yeah, it's it. So that's a concrete example that we can look at, and I think it's blatant enough to merit. I, I think you would have a hard time arguing that wasn't the case. Um. But this happened in a time when literacy rates were just as low. The rate was just as low. The population was higher, so there happened to be more writing people. Um, and the circumstances were slightly different. But if, if we were doing it then, there's no reason for me to think that we didn't do it before. You know? Right. Um, so when we're talking about these histories, um, so when you take a history class in high school or college or whatnot or maybe you're just discussing it um or maybe watching videos on youtube about it like historius villus which we'll shout out because we never get a chance to shout him out uh, that's a great youtube channel about it roman history great, well not just roman there's a lot of roman that's true some greek some english and others others yeah no great youtube channel highly recommend um and and he cites some of these historical texts from time to time, but he also does the work to explain when something might not be so literal, you know, as well. So, yes. Um, but when you and I watch videos like that, or, you know, you may hear stories about that when you think of, let's just do Rome, for example, because I think it's one of the most, everyone's heard of the Roman empire. It was the biggest, baddest empire ever for at one point, you know? Yes. Not that long, not long enough ago to matter. Not long enough ago to be irrelevant either. Um, well, and for a long enough time that it affected everything. Very long time. Like, I don't know the exact start and end dates of the Roman Empire, but... About a thousand years, though. About a thousand years. It's a pretty long time. That's, that's a uh, pretty long time. Is that counting the Byzantines, too, which were essentially Romans, uh, but in the East? <laughs> I don't think so. Yeah. they. Mm, yeah. Point is, long time. You've probably heard of them. Um, also, they left relics that are very obvious today. Um, aqueducts, mm-hmm. usually the Romans. Um, they also fell into a unique period in history in which we almost regressed as a civilization after them, arguably. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 what we refer to as the Dark Ages. Right, that which, followed the collapse of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah um, where technology took a step back, social structure took a step back, uh, you know, arguably, and we weren't we weren't advancing again until the Renaissance really um, mm-hmm. broad strokes um, and their roads. So that's a thing that everyone, and, and if you go to the city, Rome, their capital, a lot of their structures still stand today. The Colosseum, which is not even remotely the most impressive thing that they did, even though it is impressive, but it's the one that gets the most mm-hmm. love because it's round or something and big and it'd be, it'd be big. Um, but even the, is it the Apocrypha? No, that's in Greek. Uh, Temple of Saturn, I think, is still mm-hmm. standing. Um, domed roof, large building. Like, it, it's fascinating to think about a society that long ago being able to construct something that... Most buildings built today don't last that long. No. For example. And it's huge. Um, which, again, impressive. But a lot of these stories come about, come out from Rome itself, the, the capital, right? Like we hear stories about the celebrations that took place. All of the people who mattered in Roman history came out of Rome for the most part. Pretty much. Pretty much. You know, all the Caesars, all the generals, all the senators, the, the patrician 
upper class group of people, the vast majority of them, if they weren't in Rome, they were definitely on the, they were definitely homed out of the Italian peninsula, even though they would, they would travel to other places in the empire to serve as governors, they would still come back. Um, and, and to me, it never struck me how rare that was until thinking about it in context of history. So like watching Historia Civilis, he talks a lot about how, well, yeah, then these people, they fled to Spain for a while. Or is it Angola is what it used to be called? I don't, that's a different place. That's in Africa, North Africa. I don't know. They would flee to some other place across the Mediterranean mm-hmm. for a couple of years and then just come back. But that most most people don't do that. You know, unless you were in the army or you were a person who was literate and actually wrote about your time there. Um, But these are the people who wrote most of the history Mm -hmm. or people wrote about them. Very little consideration was given to what the life of the Roman farmer in Sicily was like. The breadbasket, you know. There were people there that were from Rome. But the people who live day to day there, you know, what was their life like? And and this brings up, I think, our, our other our other point for this, which is has to do with like what does the social influence heat map look like for for these societies? And additionally, what's the social cohesion? I guess on top of that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So when we look at like let's just look at human civilizations today, right? Like what how socially homogenous? Like what 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 country would you think would ha- have the most homogenous? Uh, society or culture, and for what? Like, or what? What would would you think about to? Like, what are you considering to try to come up with an answer? Because we don't have a metric for this necessarily. You know, we're probably going to be wrong, but uh, China. I was going to say the Vatican, but yeah, that's fair. It's not though. That's literally um. Has just a handful of citizens, but but I give. Well, yeah, well, yeah, yeah. That that's why it's fair because the Vatican is so small. You can't really have discord. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think just geographical size is is one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, geographical boundaries. I think India is a good contender as well mm. because of the subcontinent. I'm just saying, like, compared to, like, other neighbors that you would break from. Like, how similar are different subgroups in India to each other as compared to subgroups within China, for example? Which, then again, you have a good reason, I think, to believe China. Yes, because... Or else. (laughs) Or else, yeah. You will cohere or else. Sure. Um, Well, and additionally, I think a lot of, you know there are certain cultural markers that kind of contribute to social cohesion as well. Um, Some of the nations that have the most broken, like, I guess, dissimilar social groups, uh, geography can affect it. um, But also I think how free the people are changes it. You know, how reliant, or is the average person on the central authority, you know? Actually, I changed my mind. I'm not trying to. Hmm. North Korea. Yeah, that was another. <laughs> yeah, pretty culturally homogenous. If poverty was culture, it would be. <laughs> well, right, yeah, because you, you have the same sort of authoritarian regime, but North Korea is also a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, actually has walls around it to keep people in. Yep. Even if it's just because they practically can. 
But um, now what about the least similar? Like the most, di- like I won't say necessarily diverse in this way, but like the most fractured. Fractured. Of subcultures. I can think of a couple reasons why maybe. Um, certain former, like, I think any nation that was artificially created by external forces is going to have these problems. Mm-hmm. Um, Israel is a great example. I was going to say Israel is immediately coming to mind based on that. Yep. Um, and before that, if you look at the way uh, the Germanic states have a excellent history of being different enough to not want to be in the same country, but also some of them thinking that they all need to be together and they fight tons. The number of unification wars Germany went through. Yeah. And a good example, I think. Um, although I would say Germany is a lot more homogenous now than it used to be. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone from Germany would strongly disagree. That's okay. But uh, you're wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> or tell me about it. I'm more than happy to listen. Um, but yeah, um, South Africa is another one. Um, mm. It's very divided. And yes. that's because you have, a, you. that's more like the Sparta situation than ever. You do have invaders that live alongside a native population that did subjugate them, but n- now kind of doesn't, but still... But people are mad. Yeah, people <laughs> still mad about it. Um, weirdly enough, I don't think you see the same thing in places like, uh, look at a lot of the Spanish colonies. The Spanish colonies do have heavy Catholic influences and architectural influences, but those societies that felt like homogenized really quickly, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. um, Spanish and Portuguese, perhaps, um, like most people in Mexico, for example, you, you don't have like the, Oh, well, my family is more Spanish. Whereas someone else may be like, well, my family is much more, uh, indigenous. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there is some of that, but, they're all Mexican, you know, at, at some point. You know what I mean? Like, there's there's a strong national identity, I think. Right. That ties them close enough together. It, or at least regional, you know. Um, the only one I have enough personal experience... Well, okay. And one more. Canada. It's another great one. Mm. What happens when you let the French stay French, the Scots stay Scottish, and the British stay British, and then you have the backwater people in between, essentially. That's a very interesting nation when you look at it. Like, Nova Scotia, i.e. New Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very Scottish in a lot of ways. Yes. Even down so much to being, it's the tiniest one and the scrappiest one. <laughs> um, yeah, Quebec, which is aggressively French. So more is there so- another way to be French than aggressive though? I mean, I I have memes, but I don't, I don't want to. I, did, I right said now. aggressive, not victorious. Um, Woof. <laughs> I was just like, I don't know. I mean, most French people speak Farsi now, but that's whatever. Um, uh well that's also a good example like well and and that's to be fair like in europe right now there's a lot of um refugee migration that goes through europe that causes a lot of cultural disparity um the united states is the same way being one of the world's largest importers of immigrants but also being large enough that they can kind of spread out on top of having an indigenous population that still is uniquely identifiable today 
and being geographically (laughs) geographically large enough good lord um i don't know why my i'm tired my accent slipped out real hard right there (laughs) being geographically large enough that and geographically diverse enough too that you can have people whose culture changes based on those factors Mm -hmm. you know um i think one of the funniest examples is to hear people talk about um people who are not from places in the Southeast, right. Where it's hot and humid. Talk about how it's hell. Like it's, it's hell on earth Mm -hmm. because the weather is so dreadful, but people from the Southeast going anywhere like Wisconsin in which snow banks are normal and the wind in the long winters and it's dark all the time. And you have to use oil to heat your house because electricity is not reliable. (laughs) Um, and and so much so that there's a lot of places there that just do not even have air conditioning. Right. It never gets hot enough to need it. Or it does, but only for like two weeks out of the year. Right. So why bother? Why bother? Yeah. It's not worth it. Whereas, you know, in the South, it's AC is a fundamental requirement for human existence. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. Um. So, yeah, I, I, the point I'm trying to get at, though, is and you made this point earlier, like what would it be like if 10,000 years from now, all the writing was done, was kept in Washington, like only the people in Washington, DC, the capital of the United States are the ones who did most of the writing. Um, could they capture what just how ha- just what their country was like adequately? No, no. Um, does it matter? Yes. Yes. Um, so, I guess, how does it matter? I guess from from the perspective of the 10,000 years into the future humans that are coming out of the fallout shelters and dealing with the new world that they've inherited and there's tons of historical artifacts everywhere, but they, they're trying to piece together who is who and whatnot. You know, what? how would they perceive, you know, America 10,000 years from now? Um, especially once the, you know, 10,000 years plus 2,000 years to get back to normal, like where we are now, right? What what would it look like? You know, I think one of the biggest indications you would have, and this isn't historical, but, well, actually, maybe not. So, America has military bases across the world, mm-hmm. right? Just like the Romans had Roman, essentially, not quite military bases, but they occupied many places throughout the world and they would build their improvements across the world. Then again, back then, I think the difference in technology for like what they were able to construct was different enough that you can look at something and go, Oh yeah, this is definitely a Roman building in Spain and Catalina, you know, could you tell that it was an American military base in Japan or would it just, would you assume it's a Japanese military base, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, that's a good question. After that amount of time, when all the all the symbols around that would give it away as an American base will probably have faded by then. I think maybe you could, now that I think about it. Um, look at the military hardware, especially like ground vehicles. Tanks are made of steel, and we still shape them very differently. Uh, yeah. The design philosophies are different enough, perhaps. But... 
I don't, I'm not convinced. Here's a, here's a, here's a really good example. I think uh, one last example I'll give and before we can, I'll open it up because I know I've talked a lot in this episode, but have you heard of, uh, there was a book that did, wasn't very popular, but that spawned a movie that was called Hillbilly Elegy. No. Um, this was a popular story about, it was, it was somewhat autobiographical. Um, the guy based on his own life, but it was a, it was a guy who moved to, I think DC or someplace like that. He moved to a city, but he wrote a book about what life was like in like, I think it was West Virginia, maybe in Appalachia. I'll say that generalize it enough. What Appalachian life was like when he grew up and how, and, and, and why more people don't do what he did, you know, and almost to some degree how they don't want to, you know, and that's hard for people to understand. Um, it was very popular, but the movie is far more dramatized than the book. And even the book focuses on some of the most archetypal, archetypical examples of these behaviors. It would be unfair to say that everyone in Appalachia be, thought this way or was this way. But we're going to take the few things that they all, the vast majority of would tend to agree on and then crank them to 11 because I need this character to stand out amongst all the other characters, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I think that you would get hints about the other places, but they would be some day. In the book of a thousand pages about America, about half of it would be dedicated to the history because we, we talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and then about a quarter of it would be about the capital or the exploits of the country abroad and then the other quarter of the book would be evenly divided up amongst all the other little areas and you would each get a couple of pages to talk about your culture or what your life was like you yeah know? um so why is this important to know or acknowledge do you think i don't know what relevance it has going back through history in a sufficient through a sufficiently long line of history, but if I can think about how it might be relevant today, if I'm thinking about like 10,000 years from now, people are reading about America. If it, if it were, you know, written by people in the capital or only in big cities, um, how I'm thinking about like the difference in politics between urban and rural America yeah. and how things Things that seem obvious or like common sense to people in cities is not so to people in the country and vice versa. Um, and so you could get the, you could get a false impression by reading only things written by people who lived in cities their whole lives about how, like what, what political ideas were around in the country at that time. Sure. Um, and like people in cities would acknowledge the existence of other, of opposing political views, but they certainly wouldn't have a nuanced understanding of them. Right. Or, nor have a perhaps favorable view, especially since in American politics is very antagonistic. Yes. Um, I, I agree. So you could, you could definitely see them like painting their political opponents as just stupid or evil or zealots, like religious zealots, for example. Sure. Um, no, I agree. 
and I think what's interesting about it is we definitely have the capability now to not have to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's understandable historically why it happened. We've talked about it this pretty much whole episode. Yes. But literacy rates are much higher now. M- Pre- basically everyone in the United States knows how to read and write. Yeah. Basically everyone. And not only that, but even if you don't, we have methods of recording history that do not rely on writing. Sure. Although the argument is safe to make that writing is still one of the longest living forms of record. Mm-hmm. Um, I think within a human lifetime, yes, a hard drive's good enough, but over thousands of years... Even decades. Even decades, maybe. Yeah. How good is that hard drive going to be at saving that information? It's not. You're going to have to keep rewriting it to different different right even if even if it sits on a shelf and incurs no mechanical wear that would cause the drive to fail the strength of the magnetic recording on the on the discs will fade with time and in 15 20 years it's all going to be gone what about solid state drives i don't know exactly how long those those last mm-hmm. i don't i don't know what causes them to fade over time sure i'm sure something there's some entropy involved i mean there's even entropy in written word it's just yeah yeah i i agree um but also there's the there's always the opportunity i mean we could automate transcripting for example Uh, a good example anyone can record an anyone with a microphone can record an audio file and upload it to youtube and youtube for example will strip out the text as well as it can interpret it and you could print that out on a piece of paper and store it if you wanted to that's a grand undertaking when you consider just how much i hate this word content that is generated um but if you use that word content to like as an equivalence to writing which it's not by the way i don't think that's maybe a separate issue um the the short version of that is you have to think things out to write them effectively, usually. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have all day. Also, when you write something, you've already thought about it. But by the time it gets from the top of your head to your hand, you have contemplated it more, a lot more, than the time it takes from it to come from the top of your head out of your mouth. Yes. <laughs> it's a, People are you, a lot more careful about the way they write than the way they speak. Well, sure. You, you have to write slower than you speak anyway yes your hand can't move fast enough yeah right which is a good limitation in a way because you do think about it also you have a chance to revise it you're more incentivized to revise it because no one else has read it when you've typed it immediately when you've written it yeah yeah um however if i were to say it to a bunch of people um they already heard it so i'm not going you're not going to go back and fix it yeah i'm not going to go edit live my what i was saying um but I do think it is valuable. Um, and, and and it also gives value to little things that I used to n- not really understand. So historical societies. Have you ever been to a historical society anywhere? No. They're everywhere. And it's really interesting. Um, and I, at least in America, I would say. It's insane to me how many small towns will have tiny 400 square foot rooms 
on a street on the main street where it's the historical society and it has little artifacts from history in it like a little mini museum that it's only really relevant to that area like they could put it in a big museum in a centralized area where it's going to go sit in storage but why but why when you can display it and the people who it would matter to are there um and those are the people who care or should theoretically care the most Mm -hmm. you know why is it that this place i live is like this what happened here where i live you know and and I think there's also some kind of intrinsic value to us for that. Um, like, I don't know about you, but people love to talk about where they're from, or at least previously. Say, for example, you and I are talking to someone who's not from where we live. We, I don't know about you, but I would, I, I tend to believe that people like to talk about where they're from. They like to be nuanced about it. Because you know that it's something that the other person doesn't know. And there's like a joy that we get from being able to talk about something that we have a firm understanding of to someone who doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe it's because you know you're not going to get into a debate about it. There's not going to be an argument over what life is like for you. You are so firmly the authority on what's being talked Especially about. compared to this other person who's never even been there. Yeah. So, and it's good to feel like the authority on a subject. And that's one that you didn't have to do a whole lot of studying necessarily to be an authority on. You live it every day. Um, like what life is like, I mean, not right. the history of the area, but I don't know. It, that's interesting. And I, I do think it's worth our while to try to, I, there have been other movements like citizen science, for example, where the average person tries to contribute to scientific endeavors with varying degrees of success. Um, But I think one thing that we, that people could do that would absolutely be much more successful than that is contribute to citizen historical record. Mm -hmm. You dear viewer or listener, you can write the history of what life is like now, even while it's not history, while it's just current, but it will become history and you can speak on it much more authoritatively than anyone else. Even and especially the more people that do this, you can form more accurate, more accurate aggregations of what life truly is like. You can take multiple perspectives of the same thing with close proximity and average them to come up with a much more comprehensive view about what a place was like when something happened. And I know that there's probably the inclination that, well, I maybe live in a boring place where nothing happens or you live in an exciting place where there's already people doing this for you, you know? However, you never know when your place is going to become important for some reason, even if it has nothing to do with the people who were there. Good example. um, There have been, a couple of incidents in which uh, like a, a disaster occurs. The one that I like thinking about is uh, there was a um, nuclear bomber in the fifties that dropped its payload on the, on like in the middle of, I think it was like uh, Tennessee or something like that, or maybe it was North Carolina just in a field and it didn't detonate, but there's a, you know, 20 megaton nuclear warhead just sitting in a farm Fortunately, did not detonate because it wasn't armed. It 
or it came out in a crash or something like that. Mm-hmm. Up until that moment, nothing significant had ever occurred in that place. But now a it's nuclear sig- warhead was dropped there. And you are now significant. Yes. And that puts you on the map. And it's nice to be able to put as a footnote, even as just even if it's just a footnote, what what is that place like? Like, how do you juxtapose like how do those people react to that incident? And how would it be so different than the person who reads it, which you don't know where that person's from? You know, and that's something that only you can provide. But you can provide that before the bomb dropped on it. You know, um, other good examples like where other bombs have dropped, but it actually went off Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan at the end of World War II. Um, the only reason most people know the names of those two cities are because of what happened there. Mm-hmm. Very, very few people outside of Japan, probably, and maybe even just those areas could tell you what life was like there. But most people would assume it was just like Tokyo or whatever. It's Japan, the homogenous nation in 1940. Yeah, no. No. Um, yeah, and so how do they handle just it a, differently? a point know? of perspective here. This is something that I only kind of put together recently. I, I happen to be looking at some maps and uh, and realize this. Uh, Japan is a bigger place than a lot of people think. Yes. And not just in the sense that, like, okay, so... People people say that, that a place like England is a big place because it has many diverse cultures. But Japan is actually geographically large as well compared to what you would think. It looks tiny on a world map because it sits right next to China, which is huge. Yep. But if you actually compare it to something that you're going to be more familiar with, at least if you're an audience of this show, Japan is about as long as the east coast of the United States. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that can fit in an area like that. Yeah. I mean, Florida is very different than uh, Maine. Yeah. So <laughs> some perspective, perhaps. I mean, I, I know it's in a different... It's also in the Northern Hemisphere. Is it? We're at basically the same uh, latitude. Okay. Hmm. I wonder if the... Hmm. <laughs> I'm beginning to imagine now the southern tip of Japan being just like Florida. And I'm, I'm sorry, Japan. I know it's probably not like that. Uh, absolutely not. <laughs> Uh, yeehaw um yeehaw, yeehaw brother um <laughs> so what are japanese alligators like <laughs> stuff like that you know what does an alligator sushi roll taste like pretty good probably probably it's very lean um anyway yes probably not very clean but go on <clears throat> that, that's all oh, that's all okay yeah so i mean i guess that's really the only thing it it was just interesting to think about and this is, I guess, where we're going to deliver the news that we're going to stop doing philosophy and we're going to start doing hoostery. No, I'm just uh, kidding. No, we're not. I'm just kidding. Um, but yeah, um, and, I, and I like talking about it because I think it's worthwhile for other people to know and to think about. Um, one last example of someone who already does this that I actually really appreciate, even though I did not find it because I cared about his historical uh, work. Um, in range TV, uh, mm. has a man named Carl. I think he's the main host of in range. Yes. Um, he loves to talk about firearms and shooting and things like that. However, he has a, um, historical record of what things were like, not just in the Southwest of the United States. He does go outside of the Southwest, but, um, he likes to visit 
places that have had historical events occur and then using these little historical societies or landmarkers there cross-reference the history and come up and tell the story of what happened there and a lot of the places he covers are not places you've probably ever heard of Mm. unless you live there and i really appreciate hearing these tiny histories because it gives you a much more i think in-depth perspective yeah because when you think the southwest or back then it was just known as the west um cowboys and such everyone has the image of the cowboy with the dark hat who's obviously the bad guy and then the um guy with the big iron on his hip coming into town to stop the bad guy everyone i think knows the basic plot of a western film and if you don't you should watch at least one in your lifetime it's actually pretty interesting if you can get over the if even if you're not a fan of western iconography um but having grown up being force-fed those films by my <laughs> father it was it's really worthwhile to learn just how wrong they are about a lot of things that's also something yeah um but still it's very interesting and i think that there is a there is a cultural component of living in areas like that that really helps you understand a lot of the more libertarian mindset that inhabited those places um and in general government distrust so yeah that was interesting anyway sure um but yeah i think i think we could ad nauseum examples the world's a big place yes feel free to fill in examples for yourself and share them with others that's all i have for today i think i'm satisfied very well philosophers philosophers if you like the music in this episode please check out jippy on bandcamp at jippy.bandcamp.com philosophers is supported by viewers like you if there's a topic you'd like us to discuss or a topic you'd like to see revisited in the future please let us know by contacting us using the methods in the description or in the comments below thank you for listening